Welcome back, everybody. We're still here, Paul and Dan, with the Paul-proclaimed headache guru, Jeff Foucurier. If you guys missed part one, please listen. A lot of good information on there. Today, we're going to continue on and dive a little bit further into the wonderful world of headaches. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. So again, thanks, Dan Paul, for having me. I, I really appreciate sharing this information because I think this material is very important and can help a lot of new therapists out there who are overwhelmed with the idea of dealing with the patient, not dealing, helping a patient with, with that is suffering from headaches. Um, just as a recap, so in the last podcast, we talked a little bit about headaches driven by a neurovascular component, or at least primarily. You mean the, we talked about a lot? A, a lot, <laughs> but a maybe, lot. Maybe not a lot in your terms. Yeah, well, I, maybe I a lot really touched on it. And, and there's, there's a lot more information out there that it, you know. I'm really going to encourage all listeners to, to continue to look into, especially if this is a field you're interested in, um, because it's it's ever growing. But again, going back to, to the, those those four headaches we talked about before: your migraine headaches, your tension headaches, your cluster headaches, as well as again a result of pharmaceutical management, your rebound headaches. It really kind of sets the stage again for other types of, of headaches and. The reason I say that is because any type of headache that you have, there is neurological involvement. When we start talking about the headache that we as physical therapists can best manage, and as far as research shows with cervicogenic headaches, if you manage a cervicogenic headache properly, you can get rid of someone's symptoms in three to four weeks. That's huge. And I'm going to emphasize that if you are able to correctly diagnose and use objective measures to support your findings, to direct your care, you're going to be able to resolve someone's cervicogenic headache in less than a month. So what are some things you need to understand about cervicogenic headaches? Yes, they are driven by the neck. Cervicogenic mean originating from the cervical spine. So what components of the cervical spine are involved? It could be really anything, to be quite honest with you. It could be muscles. It could be ligaments. It could be joints. Um, most typically, what you're going to find with cervicogenic headaches, it's going to be driven by either facets, zygopophyseal components, or, or the, the muscular component. Um, a very common presentation, of course, is that upper trapezius cervicogenic headache, um, which intention-type headaches is going to present um, uh, with muscular activation as well, the upper trapezius, and it's going to form a, a ram horn headache. Now, one of the things that the main difference with with cervicogenic headaches is that it, again it's generally associated with one structure which means that symptoms are typically going to be unilateral and most of the time they're not going to be localized to the area where the dysfunction is in most cervicogenic headaches this is an important presentation symptoms are going to start in the neck and then they're going to travel to the head and that's a very important piece you need to collect in your subjective um, uh, reporting. Where are your symptoms? Where What starts? Does it start in the neck? Does it start in the head? And then from where, uh, from there, what does it travel? Now, th this goes into this, this whole question of why. And I love why questions. So understanding the relationship between the neck and referral patterns is very important because you're going to be broadening your ability to impact many more structures that may be tied to the cervicogenic headache than you originally assumed. So let's talk convergence theory. Now, in my mind, you know, uh, I get really excited when I start talking about Jeff, this stuff. Jeff and has like, the biggest smile on his face right I now. Just, I love this stuff. Um, 
And so, but again, it's it's a why. And and when I have a why, when I have an answer to a why question, I, I feel so empowered because I can help my patients that much more. So convergence theory, theory uh, looks at the relationship between the trigeminal nervous system. And actually, you can get tri- convergence theory all across the body. But in this particular case, uh, the convergence theory looks at the blending of the trigeminal nerve as well as nerves from the cervical spine, the dorsal horn. Now, what does that mean? It means that when someone has pain in their neck, it can cause facial pain. And when someone has facial or jaw pain, they can have neck pain. And it can be very overwhelming the first time you see it. The person's going to come in, you think it's just their neck, and then all of a sudden they come in the next day, my lips hurt. Um, well, I can tell you that a few panic attacks when patients say that to me because I think something else entirely is going on. But in fact, it's a very natural process of sensitization. It's how the body protects itself. And again, we're not going to necessarily get into the physiology of this, but over time, when a, a certain body part's exposed to this um, uh, noxious stimulus, um, or the body perceives there's noxious stimulus, you have something happen called central central sensitization. And what that basically means is that the peripheral irritation, so the irritation the nerves away from the spine, starts affecting the central nervous system. And that's when things start to travel. So when, when, when working with someone that you believe has a cervicogenic headache, again, uh, it's going to be unilateral, generally speaking. Um, it's going to start in the neck and travel to the face. Objectively, there are three tests that almost have 100% sensitivity and specificity when used together. So this is a little more of a cluster type testing. And these, the three tests are going to be your segmental assessment, are going to be your flexion rotation test, as well as your cr- cranial rotation test. Looking at, again, functional, dis- you're looking at movement dysfunction. That's what those tests are looking for. If you are able to identify a movement dysfunction happening in the cervical spine, and it causes symptoms or at least mimics them, guess what? You figured out what you really need to treat. But also appreciate that over time, that person's going to have facial pain. So don't just treat the neck. Treat the jaw. Jeff, just for those that might be driving the car and uh, can't Google right now, can you remind them what those three tests look like? Sure. So when doing a segmental test, there's a lot of different ways you can actually look uh, at the, 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 the neck. You can do it supine. You can do it standing. And basically, it's putting pressure through the facets individually. Um, and remember the orientation of the facets in the neck. You actually want to do more of an upward glide. Um, you want to put light pressure through this. Do not crank on someone's neck. You have to stabilize the, uh, the contralateral side of the neck and the head so that when you apply an upward force, there may be a very slight side bend rotational component to it. But again, understand these, these systems are going to be already be sensitive to touch. So putting excessive pressure is not going to, not going to really benefit your patient whatsoever. When looking at flexion rotation test, you're, you're really looking at movement at that capital cervical spine. So you're going to have that person laying supine. You're going to bring the neck up into flexion, and then you're going to rotate that capital cervical spine back and forth to assess for um, joint mobility, as well as maybe facet pain production. And when you're looking at the cranial cervical flexion test, as it sounds, you know, you're looking at the, the, the necks, the head's ability to rotate or to flex anteriorly rotate on the cervical spine. So that's looking more of that C0, C1 uh, mobility. And, and there's a theme coming from this. And, and I, I guess I, I, we might as well address it now because Paul had to bring it up. And, and that is that a lot of misinformation is out there as far as whether or not cervicogenic headaches can be caused by 
parts of the cervical spine other than the capital cervical spine. And when I say capital cervical spine, I generally mean um, uh, C1, C2 and its relationship with the cranium. Once you get C2, C3 below, that's more middle for a cervical spine and vice versa. You know, you kind of go down, um, and not vice versa, but as, as, as that continues, you go to lower cervical spine and that gets into different biomechanics. But from my experience, tension type headaches aren't just isolated to the capital cervical spine. And then, you know, once you have a certain part of the cervical spine, middle, middle part of the cervical spine becomes affected, guess what? It's a kinetic chain. Other parts of the cervical spine also get impacted. So going back to this idea of how exactly the trigeminal nerve is impacted, well, there actually are um, uh, sensory nerves, afferent nerves from the trigeminal nerve. Before they go up to the brain, they actually descend into the capital cervical spine. Um, as far as what we know, you know, C2, C3 is kind of how far down it goes. But again, research shows there may actually be, be some other nuclei lo um, located lower down the neck that may be involved. Anyways, when you have neck dysfunction, most typically in your patients with cervicogenic headache, they're going to have facial pain. And I just want to reiterate, feel comfortable treating the neck, the cranium, okay, the cranium, because we have a lot of cranial tissue as well, um, and in and, and relationship with the jaw. Well, and I think that one thing that oftentimes we discuss with students is referral patterns. And when we talk about cervicogenic type headaches, understanding those referral patterns is really, really crucial. Because where do those referral patterns typically go? If you're talking uh, soft tissue, most of those go to the face. If you're talking discogenic, that could go a, a number of different locations um, that oftentimes I find some of my students treating the scapular border because they have pain in their scapular border when it's truly a referral from the, the lower cervical spine. Um, so I think you know it, it's important for our listeners to go back and maybe study some of the Travels, trigger point. Uh, referral patterns as well as familiarize themselves with discogenic referral patterns because that that's going to give you a huge cue you know if somebody comes and talks about ram's horn distribution or pain behind their eye you need to know what the primary right. cause is now there's still going to be secondary dysfunction you're probably going to see decreased coupling patterns on the, in, the ipsilateral side and potentially contralateral side superiorly right um as well as knowing that 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 soft tissue is going to have some significant limitations right. could then go into our postural issues like right. we discussed in the last podcast about right. causing that forward upper cervical spine going into extension yes and then we have a massive dysfunction of c1 right. um, which is often forgot about right. thanks greg johnson for teaching me to treat c1 yes um, very important but you know i mean I, I think those are really crucial points that our listeners need to familiarize themselves with if they indeed are going to successfully manage this population in the three to four four weeks Correct. and i want to highlight something else jeff said too he said it's all a kinetic chain um just because you have one area that has the pain generator per se it does not particularly guarantee that is or is not the dysfunctional segment for the individual I take, for example, I mean, what's going to be your typically arthritic areas within the neck, look at your C6, C7, T1 type of region. Does that not mean that the upper thoracic spine in general hypermobility might not put more stress there, especially the transitional zone, et cetera? Just because you see an area that is typically a headache generator being the capital cervical spine, 
and you need to address that area, by all means, that does not mean that down the chain there might not be movement dysfunctions placing additional stress up the chain that is causing other compensations that then cause the actual issue right. for and us. Right, and I think so. if, we, if we look at that and we talk about, well, postural dysfunctions, even though I think that there's some literature out there that's saying that posture doesn't always cause dysfunction, which is a little befuddling yeah. <laughs> to, to me and probably you two as well, yes, is true. there's a lot of times where you can drive the thoracic spine from a bottom up on a stable fixed cervical spine and have a massive impact on relatively reduced pain movement and, and facilitating normal osteo and arthrokinematics through those joint structures from driving the thoracic spine and keeping the patient relatively symptom free, um, which is going to drastically decrease their time in therapy and improve our outcomes. Absolutely. Um, you know, I agree with that, everything you've said and, Wow, that might be a first, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I think, you know, again, as with anything, there's things have a tendency to get a lot more complex as you learn more and more about them. And as you learn more about a specific interest of yours, and to note, I don't actually consider myself a specialist by any means when it comes to the jaw and the head and the neck. Um, I consider you a specialist. Yeah, well, I'm glad you do. But <laughs> this, this is really a professional interest. And... Um, I, I like to take that approach because, you know, I, I'm, I don't ever want to consider myself a specialist because there's always something else I'm going to learn. And the more I learn, I, the, the more I feel that I don't know, which I actually think is very healthy. It's a very healthy outlook on life. But going back to what Dan and Paul said, I also want to emphasize that it's, not, it's very important not to overburden yourself too with the complexities of the biomechanics of the body. The best way to approach this is to find big rocks. And I don't know if Dan and Paul have talked to you about this before, but um, when addressing biomechanical dysfunction, you're going to identify these, these parts of the body that just do not work well. And it's going to be very evident. Start there. That is my clinical pearl. Start with a big rock you find that is obviously not working and appreciating the fact that with the kinetic chain, things will change around it naturally. So understanding your facet referral patterns and your disc referral patterns and your muscular referral patterns is wonderful. Be, you know, understand that and understand that it's, it, you're going to have varying, varying um, uh, presentation of symptoms. And then in some cases, for example, I've had patients that have had disc prolapse and they have had uh, cervicogenic presentations. I treated them. After a month, I didn't see any changes. As a matter of fact, after four or five visits or even sometimes less, if I don't see changes, if I don't have an increase or decrease, I'm automatically referring back to the physician saying, hey, I think something else is going on here. And I have had patients that have had, I know I, I, know I don't want to necessarily think this is like um, going against the grain a little bit, but I've had patients that have gone in for cervical fusions and um, they have had significant relief in, in headache presentation. So understand, you know, we have our place as, as preventative, as biomechanical experts, musculoskeletal experts, but utilizing our team of professionals out there to really look at optimizing the, the, the functional capability of our patients. So there is a time and place even for surgery, um, and surgery definitely has its place with something like this. Yeah, I think that's an important component, and, and that's something that, you know, Paul and I have stressed with our therapists here at Spooner is, it's understanding when's the appropriate time to refer out and things like that, and, you know, I think Jeff just re-solidifies that message. Um, you know, I want you to kind of talk about, you, you mentioned big rocks, and so yes. if we talk about cervicogenic headaches, do you want to kind of discuss where you've, you've consistently found those big rocks from, from seeing this patient population sure. on a regular basis? Yeah, and um, your cervicogenic headache... Um, um, presentation. So when you have a patient with a cervicogenic headache, 
going back to posture, there's going to be typically uh, this this one type of posture, and people have a lot of different names for it. It's, um, you know, upper cross syndrome. It's forward head posturing. It's um, in, in whatever you call it, increased kyphosis, increased uh, cervical lordosis. What happens is that you have aberrant motion that's now occurring at the cervical spine, simply put. And what has to happen is that the joints and the muscle tissue have to compensate for the forces that we have in, our, in, in completing our daily function. And so over time, these, these systems fail and it causes local tissue trauma, whether you're looking at bone, ligament, nerve, whatever. So that is probably most often the biggest rock you're going to see. You're going to need to start really working on posture. Now, the cervical spine, just like the rest of the spine, I really like to conceptualize in a certain way. It's very similar to a bridge. You have your very large pillars, and within these pillars, you have you know, your, your different uh, manifolds within, within the pillar, and you have your bolt, nuts and bolts that are keeping basically that, that structure together, okay? Um, and <laughs> you're giving me these spaces right now as I'm giving this example. And these, these small components that um, attach one, one um, primary piece to another um, are, can be considered your stabilizers. So those small muscles that attach from segment to segment in the spine to give control. And then you have these long things on the wire. I'm talking about suspension bridge, by the way. Um, <laughs> yes, because I, I needed to really uh, uh, make that clear. And you have guy wires, which come off of these. And these guy wires are basically the cables that come off of the pillars to stabilize it. They actually give compressive force to give stability to the bridge. Well, hey, guess what? Our cervical spine is very similar. And when you're looking at the, the postural control, understand that abnormal segmental stabilizers, let's just give an example, longus coli, if it's not working properly and you have abnormal shifts in the cervical spine, because that does happen, when you apply force, downward compression, or any kind of rotary or um, transverse, sorry, or frontal plane movement from your large phasic tissues, you look at your upper trapezius, your stenoclonomastoids, hey, guess what happens? Abnormal shear forces start occurring throughout the cervical spine which then leads to tissue failure. So one of the biggest things I like to hit in these patients is making sure, and patients that suffer from these headaches, is to make sure that their segmental stabilizers are working well and being able to identify what phasic muscles okay, are being overactive. To give an example, the sternocleidomastoid, what is its function? Well, primary function, contralateral rotation, and also when... The cranium is in a certain position in relation to the cervical spine. It flexes the head. Now, what happens when someone actually goes into a posterior cranial rotation, they fall into cervical lordosis, and the relative origin insertion changes in relation to the spine? The function of the sternocleidomastoid changes. It's no longer a flexor. It's actually an extensor okay, of the cranium. So it causes a, that posterior rotation of the cranium even more so when someone's sitting at a table and they're sitting in front of their computer with forward head posture, they're going to start developing myofascial irritation, the sternocleidomastoid, because that sternocleidomastoid is now providing um, not only rotary force, but also stabilizing force of the cranium in that position, which then in turn increases irritation to the capital cervical spine, which is another big rock. The capital cervical spine is very important especially when looking at the relationship between the cranium and C1. I know Dan has said it before. It's very important to treat C1. It is very important to treat C1 and C2. And, and treating C1 is a pretty complicated technique, mm -hmm. and it's something that um, without some extensive mentoring through a variety of different organizations, educational organizations out there, it's something that can be pretty challenging and 
uh, a little unsettling to try and treat. She's like, wait, I'm going to treat C1. I'm going to do an anterior glide of C1. Wait, 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 hold on. You want me to do what? I mean, that, so, you know, I want, I want our listeners to understand that this is, this is some pretty high level stuff and that there are some educational out institutions out there that can help correct you know give some guidance to this yes. region so yes and i think once you get that education it becomes less much less daunting Absolutely. but i highly highly encourage you to get this continued education before you attempt any of these kind of um, mobilizations and manipulations just because these areas you know um there's so much neural tissue and vascular tissue around these areas you need to really appreciate but you know that's another big rock and when, when looking at uh you know, the cranium's ability to move on c1 or even c1 to move on c2 you have to consider these as, as primary components and what you're going to be doing to treat um, a cervicogenic headache. Now, like I had mentioned before, generally speaking, there is one particular tissue that is the primary cause, what, co- what, what drives a cervicogenic headache. If you find that, you treat it. That is your biggest rock. Now, to cause long-term change, though, you need to be able to consider the entire chain. So don't forget the thoracic spine. Don't forget the diaphragm. Please don't forget the diaphragm. And also appreciate, too, and, and talking about that, if someone is not using their diaphragm properly, they're using their secondary breathing muscles, their accessory breathing muscles, which we call apical breathing, and they're using all these large phasic tissues around the neck on a regular basis thousands of times a day. And guess what that causes? Yeah, that causes pain and dysfunction in addition to what the person's already having. So... Yes, we just moved from the head down to the diaphragm, um, and it's, they're related. Uh, they're functionally related, so it's very important to keep that in consideration. Um, so what kinds of techniques can you utilize when treating more local tissue dysfunction and joint dysfunction in the neck? You can use, you can use your, mobiliza- your joint mobilizations. You can use your myofascial mobilizations. Uh, you can use your trigger point release, which is a form of that myofascial uh, mobilization. Um, I, I believe that there is a combination uh, that you should utilize in soft tissue treatment when looking at the neck, and that is both compression therapy as well as a decompression therapy. Um, now, there are different kinds of compression therapy. I mean, obviously, trigger point release is one of them. I'm kind of on the wall with, with dry needling, to be quite honest with you, not as a modality because it's amazing as a modality, especially when dealing with neck pain and headaches, but also whether or not it's actually compression. Um, you know, from, um, from the literature, we do see that actually there is, um, it does cause a local stretch to the tissue. Um, but again, I can't necessarily confirm that. Especially when you twist a needle. <laughs> yes. And that is a technique I do like to utilize. Um, I do use a twisting, a twisting technique to, to stimulate a more gross, uh, um, uh, neuro, neuromuscular stimulation in the tissue as well as, you know, cause vasodilation. But um, there, don't, don't be restricted to thinking that you're just going to do joint mobilizations and trigger point release. Also consider things like cupping. Now, I know that there's not a lot of things out there that, that actually support the use of cupping for things like headaches and neck pain, but don't be afraid to try something new. Um, I mean, when you really think about it, if someone is having hypercontraction in the cervical paraspinals, um, and it's causing a lot of compressive forces to the facets and to the different uh, structures around the neck, you know, using something like, um, again, decompression therapy may actually give that person quite a bit of relief if they're not able to tolerate more aggressive compression type of therapies. Well, I think also one of the things that Paul and I stress a lot with our therapists here is is making sure that that tissue can both elongate yes, and compress, yes, right, or shorten. Correct. Um, and I think that's that's often missed in a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of treatment philosophies or educational philosophies is is the is the understanding that it needs to shorten and lengthen. Correct. Um, 
And oftentimes, what's therapists go to? They go to, well, I'm going to lengthen this tissue right. to, to work on it with my hands, regardless right. of the technique that they're doing, right? Right. Um, but putting it into that shortened position may actually be your opportunity to, to help that for sure that patient more more effectively and have longer lasting effects. Right. And I, I think just to give a, a practical example, um, let's say you have a patient that has um, the inability to, to, to flex or they have pain with flexion for whatever reason, they feel much better in extension. So an ex- a patient with extension bias, when you develop your plan of care, sometimes it's better to keep them in that shortened or extended position before you move them into a flex position because that's what they do well with. A large part of what we do is, is neuromuscular education. And um, this has direct ties to the central nervous system. This, this is also very, very true for when dealing with cervicogenic headaches and, and neck pain and, and head pain, um, is that you, you need to take in consideration what the patient can handle what they're going to benefit from most early on, it's a stepping stone. You have to start where they can succeed and then build off of that. Yeah, and I think that that's, again, you're, you're echoing some things that some of our other guests have spoken about and right. Paul and I have spoken about, about starting with success. Yes. Um, and I think oftentimes, you know, in, in school, that's not what at all we were taught. We weren't taught to start with success. We were taught to drive into that dysfunction, right? right. Like, right. oh, they fit into the extension classification. Let's drive them into extension all the time. Right. Well, right. Mm, is that is that really the best way to go? Now, there are certain, you know, schools of thought out there that are very successful with that. Right, right. But I think that you, Paul, and I are very good examples of being a diverse group of clinicians and having the ability to say, well, is that really what the patient is going to respond to? Are they right. going to respond to that flexion movement, even though that's, you know, that potentially discomfort? Or should we start them more with where they can be successful based on a lot of other issues, you know, psychosomatic, right. um, you know, irritability, severity, stage, you know, those lovely right. sins that we learned in school. Yes. I think that's a really important component that just because that they should move into flexion doesn't mean that we have to start them in flexion. Correct. Yeah. I also want to circle back to a second. I yes. give you a chance to talk a little bit more about cupping. Um, yes. I, cause I always find it quite interesting. Again, Dan, he mentioned very nicely, talked about how we talk about muscle extensibility, muscles to be able to elongate and fold, but it's not just happening in one specific direction. You have muscles lying on top of muscles, lying on top of muscles, lying on top Correct. of other structures. And we've seen in science that you have cross-acting adhesions. We know that different things can apply down and here down to each other. And that's going to obviously impact the ability of the muscle to move in numerous capacities. So even if you do or don't like cupping, I still think the idea behind it, however you address it, is an important one to talk about. And especially in this area where there are so many different muscles lying on top of each other that can all impact the mechanics of the absolutely, spine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that um, um, Paul and I actually were discussing is, you know, what exactly do you do as far as education? Because, you know, we've really highlighted so far that, you know, we're very, I believe that, you know, we're dynamic therapists that like to use research-based evidence to guide what we do, but also really appreciate mentorship and clinical experience. Because in my mind, clinical experience goes a long way in, in, in making sure you have a long-lasting effect in your patient. So where do you start? And I, I really do believe that having a more eclectic approach to your treatment style is, is so important to really understand how each system interacts with another. Uh, so when you start talking about the muscular system and its interaction with the fascial system, fascia is extremely important, but you're not necessarily going to see um, much emphasis on fascial treatments with a lot of your traditional um, manual therapy courses. 
And so talking, you know, talking to, to therapists who have been trained, let's say, in the, through the Baral Institute, um, it, it, it's very beneficial to speak to these individuals because they have a, such a different conception of how biomechanically we move um, as, as a unit. And they appreciate, I think, the visceral component, absolutely, but also to, much, you know, to a larger extent, I think, the fascia as well. So, yes, absolutely. When you're treating the neck, you have to take in consideration all these different factors. But please, please do not get overwhelmed by how interconnected these systems are. It's great to understand that and appreciate it. But really stick again with those big rocks we were talking about. All right. Well, I think that was a really great discussion, actually. I learned a lot and definitely laughed a little bit. And um, I, I really thank Jeff for taking the time to come and podcast with us. And Absolutely. hopefully we'll, Anytime. we'll get to podcast some more with him and, and probably do one on the jaw at some point because that's another interest that, that we have with Jeff. And um, highly associated with what we just talked about. Absolutely. So that, you know, potentially look for part three coming out with, with the jaw. Um, again, any feedback is welcomed and encouraged to therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. And uh, thanks for joining us. 